the topic of tshuva is one of the f- pillars of, of Yiddishkeit, and it's one of the pillars of life for people that are honest people, because people make mistakes, people make bad mistakes, and without tshuva you can't live. And there are many different ways of looking at tshuva, and this is a maimed that Alter Rebbe wrote in the beginning of this week's parsha. It's such an uplifting uh, tshuva mimer, but let me begin with a beautiful story. I think it's a great match, the story. I think it was during the life of um, of the Mitle Rebbe. I think it began in the life of the Mitle Rebbe, but we're going back a couple of hundred years. The Russian government, who demanded its citizens to be drafted to the army, which is the case in most countries, America, right now doesn't demand the draft, right? In Israel, Lahavdil, uh, people have the merit, but they don't have the option, really. They have to conscribe. That's the way it always used to be. You needed to, you're a man, you're 18 or whatever the age, you have to join the army. And religious Jewish soldiers were very difficult, understandably so, Shabbos and Kashros and from a people. Until today, even in Israel, the Haredim are making the other Jewish people crazy. We drove people crazy. I'm not going to take that away. And their solution of Zad Nicholas, Yemach Shemay, the evil, he's not going to give up Jewish soldiers. He needs bodies. But the Jewish soldiers cannot come religious. So he demanded a quota. I don't know what those numbers were. From every X amount of families, he's going to conscribe Jewish children from when they're five, six, seven years old. Look at the dishes. Basically, taken away from the parents, raised by a Russian Goyesha family, to make sure that by the time the kid turns 18, if anything, he'll know he's Jewish. He's not going to have Shabbos, he's not going to have Kashros, he'll be, God forbid, a good Russian soldier. And that was his solution. And it was a king, but people went along with it. And this was a very difficult time for the Jewish people. People moved countries. Now it's easy to move. It's never easy to move. Younger people think it's easy to move. Then people were unable to move. You lived, you lived, you couldn't move, you couldn't, you didn't have the money, to. you didn't have the koyach. This, this made people move. Because what ended up happening is, is that, can you imagine, every city, every year they made a goidel. It's like a horror movie. And whoever's family's name came out on the lottery... They needed to give their five, six, seven-year-old over. Now, if you if your kid was not in there, you were saved. The parents whose name came out, they didn't give their kids. They couldn't. How can you blame them? Which then in turn, the government, what did they do? They need from every village, they had a quota. Depending on how, you know, Jews live together. Fruma Jews live together. You go to Eastern Europe now, for some people, people like going for good or bad. Mamish, even though we were in Golas for all these years, you had towns and villages, it was Frum, Mamish. And if not Frum, traditional. So from that village, they needed to have 30 kids. If the city did not give it over to them, they would send in uh, soldiers on horses and they would snatch kids off the street. It, it, it could be the kid was already older, so no, some families felt they were shepotted already because they used to have them when they were five, really. Five. Sometimes your eight-year-old just didn't come home from school. Can you imagine? I mean, it's hard to imagine. This was 
the evil, the cruelty, and just on a side, that there is a story, who, I didn't prepare to share it, but it was it left a big impression on me. There, there is a story, I'll share it Bikitsev, of how this came to an end. It came to an end when a, when a later Russian king realized that snatching them at five didn't help with the problem. They remained stubbornly Jewish. He was trying to rip out the Yiddishkeit. The, the short version was is that one of these, by the way, kidnapped, Khatufim, is Kantonistin. So if you ever speak to Russian Jews, and you hear the word Kantonist or Kantonistin, that's the name of these kids who were snatched. They were raised as Goyim. They were stubborn Jewish kids. And they got beaten for not wanting to abandon Yiddishkeit. And they left the army, I think when they were 30, it was a 25-year gazeta. It was, it's like from five, so you're five, you're 30. So they left as young men. Many of them were emotionally, who knew how to measure these things then. They were a mess. But even physically, they were beaten. There were times that they were so um, not social, they were so disturbed that they couldn't, we couldn't assimilate them. There were actually shuls in Russia called the shuls of the Kantonistan. They hung out together because when such a person would come into shul, they would create chaos. They would disturb people. They were made meshuga by, by, by the evil government. There was a story that there was a Kantonist that was very sharp. I remember some details. And uh, he, they, they were not from, because they were, but they, they were Jewish. And, and this guy was rising in the ranks. And the Tsar, like many other kings, he used to want to hear what the people feel about him, what's happening on the street. Today they do it with your smartphone, stupid phone. Everything about you, they know everything. If you want a good product, even speak about it. And you'll get advertisement. Instead of you having a type of you say, I want to find out this. And you'll get, for the next week, you'll get notifications about that. And then they start sending you uh, remedies for illnesses that you didn't even know you have. They know. When you begin watching this machla, that machla, Allah machlas, they know. They're telling you a hint. Go help yourself. Anyway, so the, the king went into a bar. And he sat next to a Russian soldier who happened to be a cantonist. And this guy was drinking away, drinking away. And it came to a point where he ran out of money. And 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 it, it, nowadays people lend you money without taking a physical collateral. No one did it then. You, you wanted a loan, they took something from you. A mashkon, they took. So the bartender, he says he wants more mashke. He says, give me a mashkin. So he pulled out his sword. The sword is property of the government. It's like pulling out your gun. And the czar saw that. Now, this guy did what all soldiers did. He was going to get money and get his sword back. The Tsar was going to get him. How did he get him? He, he called, he notified the, his chevra that there's going to be a king's inspection 6 a.m. before the bar reopens. And a king's inspection, when the Tsar came to inspect, he did it on occasion. He would go to his troops. You needed to be polished. You needed to stand that attention. If the Tsar found that you're not standing the way you should be, he can mamash kill you. It was a big tense, it was a tense moment. And everyone is standing at attention. This guy doesn't have a sword. So what should he do? So the handle of a sword was a wooden handle he fashioned. He, he, he made a mock sword, but when he put it in the sheath, if there's nothing in there, you can see that the sheath is empty. So he took a piece of wood, he was a craftsman. He made the kids and he made a fake wooden sword that when it's in the sheath, it looked like real. So he's with his uniform, with the sword. The Tsar knew him. The Tsar was watching for him. And he's walking by the troops and he's looking for this guy. 
and he walks by him, he doesn't stop by him, these evil czars, and he stopped the soldier next to him. And he says, you, this and this, your button is unpolished. He began to get angry at some sort of violation on the neighbor. And he was hyping himself up till he came to the point where he says, for such a disrespect to your king, Chayav Misa, I sentence you to death. So he turns to the Jew and he tells him, and you're going to execute him. In other words, he made a setup where, and the czar knew that this, this sword is fake. So this soldier was quick. I, the way it's written, Adoini HaKesar, my master, my king, my king, that I am here by your soldier and I am submitted to do whatever you say. However, we all believe in the king of kings. He believed in a God. And if God Almighty, if God Almighty wants to have mercy on my Jimmy, who even though you're right in your judgment, but if God wants to have mercy for him to be living to serve the czar, may God make a miracle and turn my sword into wood. And he pulls out a sword, and lo and behold, it was a wooden. And kids, the story with the czar was so impressed with this guy that not only did he not punish him, he went along with it, but he began to promote him and to promote him. This happened in the times of the Rebbe Rashab. And finally, he found out he's a guy, he's a Jew. He found out that this guy's a cantonist. So the king, the czar, told this guy, we're such good chaveidim, you can't be Jewish, you have to convert. The guy said, sure, I'll convert. And on the way to the conversion in Petersburg, whoever went to St. Petersburg, it's a beautiful city. It's like one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and it's on water. There's thousands of bridges there. I never went there. People told me it's like <coughs> nicer than Paris. And, and on one of those bridges, this guy hopped. I'm going to convert? I cannot convert. I'm a Jew. But there was no way out. He's with the king. He was going with the king. He jumped over the bridge and he committed suicide. He shouted Shema Yisrael and he took his life. And the king was very, became a friend with him. And when the king saw that no matter how many years can go by, and a guy is raised not Jewish, and at the end, he's going to die not to convert, he, that nullified the Gzeda. How beautiful is that? But let's go back. So during the time of this, this happened during the times of the Cantonistan, and we have his name. There was a guy by the name of Eliyahu. He was kidnapped very young. They write when he was eight. That means whatever. They hopped him off. They hopped. They snatched him off the street. He, Elio, remembered his name and that he's Jewish and nothing else. He forgot the name of his father. They were they were beaten. He forgot the name of his mother. He forgot the name of the village that he grew up in. He he needed to forget all that. He remembered that he's Jewish. Elio, he's Jewish. And when he was freed, when he was in his young thirties, he decided that he's going to be a Jew. He's going to live a Jewish life. He went and he got familiar with the mitzvahs and he found a Jewish wife and he established a family and he became very wealthy, Matzliach. During that time, at some point, there was a woman who was a widow who had three daughters and they and, and widows, single moms then, had no income. Mamish. She has to marry her daughters. She needs, a, she needs help. She needs a miracle. She went to the Rebbe Rashab. Tzadik, she went to the Rabbi Rashab, she had Yechidus with him, and he tells her, go to Petersburg. And that was the whole Yechidus. And she walked out of there confused. Let me go to Petersburg. She needs help with her marriage of her kids. She was expecting, if not money, a bracha for money. It didn't make sense. She was not raised amongst Hasidim, go to Petersburg. 
And she walked out there all saddened, and when the Hasidim asked her what happened, and she said, they told her, this is great. She says, what's great? I don't even have money to go to people. What am I going to do there? They said, no, the Rebbe said to go there, you're going to get help there. And they made a magbis, they gathered money, and they put her on a train. Nebach. So now the widow, with, she had money for what? I don't know for how much money they raised for her. She gets off the train, and just imagine the, the, the tzadahs of people. She's alone, she's a widow. What is she going to do there? She doesn't know. They told her, you're going to be helped, the Rebbe is a tzaddik. So she began to wander on the streets for one hour, for two hours, for three hours. She was exhausted, broken. And she sees in front of a nice house, uh, steps. Somehow the bigger houses had steps to the street. She was exo- She sat down on the steps and she falls asleep. One of the servants of the house opened the door. He sees a homeless woman sleeping on their property. Begins to shout at her. So she wakes up in a startle, Rachmanis, and there's this guy raising his voice to her. She's completely broken. She stands up to walk away when the mazel was the balabas, hears a commotion, he takes a look out, he sees right away from the way she's dressed that this is a from a woman. And he right away apologizes for his servant's behavior. He invites her and he was very hospitable to her. She was hungry, she was starving, he gave her food and they were eating dinner. And they're making small talk, and then they had, what's your name? A widow, what's your husband's name? The moment she said her husband's name, she began to share information, he changes this guy, Elio. He begins to, he becomes an inquisitor. He begins to ask questions, what's the name of your father, what's the name of your mother, what's the name of the village? He's asking and asking, and she doesn't know what's going on. And at some point, he bangs on the table, and he says, your deceased husband is my brother. Chapt, that, that, that's it. He remember he remembered the names, that's him, and that's the brother. And the Yeshua that she had, you can just imagine. That's the story. Now, I want to say like this, if you think about it, the power of a reunion, which is what Shuva is. The story goes, Mama Shawi took her in, he took in the daughters, he helped them, he paid for them. As close as family members are, if he never would have been separated, would have been a normal family like our families. He definitely would have given a couple of dollars to help his brother marry off his daughter. Nothing, you, it's a different unit of what this man did for, the, for his nieces because of the separation and the reunion. That's just the way God made us. It, it's like it's a whole different universe. And Al-Tarebbe wants to describe this concept. I think it's just a good story. When you look at Shuva, and let me just share, let me share the way the Al-Tarebbe words it. It's beautiful. The parsha begins, I mean, today's chitas is a very difficult chitas for people who should learn the Chumash. Today we read about the Cheto Egel. And the Cheto Egel is betrayal, if you want to word it that way. Mamish. In other words, it was a marriage. It was a marriage. God married us. God waited for 2,400 years to find a spouse. Shidduch crisis for God. 2,400 years to wait. I know that God is forever. But still, it took him a while until he finally, and then, then he found Avram, and until, eh, I marry you. And uh, we're talking about that less than 40 days later, idolatry is mamish, for, for, you know, how do you recuperate from that? It was a big betrayal. And that's what we read in the parsha. And there was forgiveness. I think that's the story. There was forgiveness. But there was a process. And before the trader records today's chitas, the disaster, so we begin the parsha, which which writes about the worst separation and the greatest and deepest reunion. It's called kisisa. Kisisa means 
that we should lift up, or when you will lift up, lift up the heads of the Jewish people. Kisisas Roish B'nei Yisrael, Lifkudeyem, says the Alter Rebbe, literally means when you lift up their heads, by counting them, when you, when you lift up their heads, by counting them, don't count people. We're not allowed to count people. We're not allowed to count people. We can count their hats, their yamaklach, their shoes. Count things, don't count people. So the way God, the counting was that we gave a half a shekel. And uh, that's the way census was always taken from the Jewish people. Just in context, this parsha is giving of the half a shekel wasn't just for a census, it was also for donations for the Mishkan. There's a lot of details about the giving of the half a shekel. But the words are, Kisisa esroish b'nei Yisrael lif kudeyam. When you lift up the heads of the Jewish people, when you take note of them, when you take note of them, and uh, says the Altareba, the word pikida, lif kudeyam, is, an, is pikida a modern Hebrew word? Lifkod peikuf dalid. Vahashem pokad esara. God remembered, took note of. God took note. So there's remembering in a positive way, and then there's remembering in a judgmental way. To deposit, interesting. To, to, in the bank. Pikido. Yeah. I know that in the Torah, Pikuda means to remember or to count. Uh, not a command. Pikuda is a command. Yeah, not a command. But I'm saying the word, the same letters. Pekuf dalid. Pekida. Bahashem pakad esoda. That remembering in a judgmental way. There was a judgment. And right away, God lifted us up. There is so much about the half a shekel. So much about the half a shekel. But there is one idea that Hasidah speaks about that's rarely spoken about, and that's Kedai to hear it. If you, you might have never heard it. The half a shekel was the atonement for the sin. And why do we only give a half a shekel? Why don't we give a whole shekel? So you have all these things that, you know, I can only do my part, I do a half, and without the other, I don't have the whole, I give half, God gives half, I give half, my fellow Jewish half, there's many. There's a whole theme, which is written more in the Pardis, which is a real old Kabbalistic book, the teacher of that, Izal wrote that book, and there is one mimer, to my knowledge, that speaks about this concept, that the half a shekel wasn't so much about you giving the half a shekel, you're missing the point, it, it's about realizing how there is a shekel, and how the shekel is halved, broken. And then the beauty of what happens when you bring the halves back together. Mama's chuba. The half a shekel was chuba. It's a whole, it's a beautiful insight. When Hashem made the world, everything in creation underwent a process that's called nesira, with a, with a samach, nun, Samach Yud Reishei. Nisira means splitting off. Splitting off, let's begin with Adam. That that Chazal tell us, even though there's one other opinion that we don't go by, the opinion that it says in Kabbalah, the opinion that we accept to be what really happened is that when God made man, God made Adam and Chava mamish fully formed together. They were connected at their spines. And what happened from there was that God separated them and then they got married. And that's so uh, representative 
of what happens to every person in every area in life. Adam and Chava being created together, mamish, can sound like Gavaldic. I mean, that's the goal. The goal is to have a union, to be one. And they were one. And then they were separated. Why were they separated? Because the way they were united initially was back to back. Back to back means that they were they were never able to face each other. They were never able to separate from each other, but they were never able to face each other. And in order for them to be able to face each other, which would elevate their union, the only way it can happen, that's the rule. And why did God make that rule? We don't know, but that's a rule in nature, is that there needed to be a break, a separation, and the separation now... Now, if there's a separation, it can be the worst case scenario. Everyone can go on their own way. True. But they were halved in order to give them the, the opportunity, the ability, the possibility of becoming united on a way which they never would have been united that way before. You, you can't compare. Imagine people that never see each other versus people that can see each other. It's a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. When we got to Torah, when we got to Torah, we were all converted. What is needed for a conversion process? If someone were to ask you, what, what would you answer? What is needed today for Nisa. someone? No, what else? Studying. So let me, let me say like this. There, there are two prerequisites that have to happen prior to, and then there is the actual conversion. You have to convince people first not to do it. Oh, okay, very good. So let me say the two prerequisites is that if it's a man, there has to be a bris milah. Man and woman, they have to go to the mikvah. That is what is done prior to. Gerus means the commitment of keeping all the mitzvahs. Happens, it's called Kabbalah sa mitzvahs. It happens to be that when do people formally accept upon themselves or commit to keep all the mitzvahs, mamish when they are in the mikvah. It's done in the mikvah. Side note, this is very important because there's a big difference between a prerequisite. Now, Dina said something good. There are many, many other prerequisites. First, you push them away. But I'm talking about once you accepted them. So when you someone said learning, learning is needed because for someone to accept something, they have to know what they're accepting. <clears throat> it used to be, it used to be that uh, people learned very little before they converted. I don't know how many hundreds of years ago, but in the hundreds, not the thousands. At some point in relatively in our Jewish history, a few hundred years ago, if someone would come, once we established that they were sincere, meaning they're converting because they're seeking the emes, and they came to the understanding that this is true, they would, we would teach them a couple of mitzvahs, a couple of big ones, a couple of small ones, convert them, and then they would learn. That's why when you read in the people know the story in the Shabbos Daflamadalov, people someone came to Hillel, Hillel, tell me the whole Yiddishkeit when I'm standing on one foot. That means he knew nothing. And after Hillel told him the one liner, Hillel converted him right then. Accepted it. Sounded nice. It's a nice Judaism. It's a progressive Judaism. Whatever you don't like to be done to you, don't do to others. That sounds nice. That sounds humanistic. Makabu. 
all you need to do is to notify him that Amam says a couple of big mitzvahs like the Shabbos. He doesn't even have to know how to keep Shabbos. Why is it that way? I'll explain to you just why it's not that way right now. Why is it that way? Why, why isn't it that someone has to know the whole Yiddishkeit? I'll tell you why. Let's go, let's go first historically. When we got the Torah, when we said Nasev and Ishma, when we converted, did we know Yiddishkeit? We converted before we heard the Ten Commandments. In other words, if someone would have to know a lot, however you define it, and only then convert, so then we should have been with Moshe for 40 years in the desert, learned the Torah, and then converted. We needed to convert. It wasn't that way. We didn't even hear the Ten Commandments. Right now, <clears throat> this lady that 14 years, she practiced, kept Shabbos, everything else, and all of a sudden, because she cannot find the paper. I'll get to that lady with the paper in a moment, but let me, I'll in one second. Um, important, I want to answer your question, and I'm happy I'm being recorded, but let me, let me just back up for a second. Uh, when people get married, I want to use that. That's the best example. Conversion is a commitment like marriage. That's why the, 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 the Egel Azov was a betrayal. And that's the whole thing, that there was a betrayal and there was a reconciliation. And the reconciliation was so powerful, that will be the end, that looking back, looking back, that needed to happen. That's the way we understand Shuvah. Not, God forbid, advocating any type of break. But when people look back, they will notice that in every area of their life, on some level, the only way you get from one level to an exponentially higher level is by breaking the old. When people get married, they don't know each other. When people get married, they don't know it, they don't know themselves. How can they get married? What are they committing to? They don't know to whom they're committing. To whom did you make a commitment? You don't know. Doesn't matter. What matters is, is you made a commitment. I'm committed. I mean, that's called Nasev. No matter what, I'm committed. When you make that type of commitment, you don't need to know. Actually, that's the real Nasev and Ishma. Same thing with Yiddishkeit. You don't need to know. We're telling God, I'm in. That means whatever you'll tell me, I, I didn't even hear you yet. I don't even know what you're going to come along with. That's the commitment. No matter what, I'm going to not only if I like what I'm hearing. No. Nasev and Nishma actually means to convert. The reason, just to know, the reason why it's a few hundred years when people come today to convert in every basin, um, no one will be offered a gear right away. That's because there is the other side of that coin, which is that if someone would come today to a basin and they would say, and Halavai people should be honest, that I'm converting because I'm dating a Jew. And uh, my, I want to be married and they will only marry me if I convert. Which is the cause of many uh, conversions out of Israel nowadays. It's called gay day issues. It's because of marriage. Or maybe they're married already. And then at some point, one party wants to convert. Or if it's advantageous in their mind for business reasons to be Jewish. Or for whatever any other reason. It used to be... That if someone would come to a base, then if that would be the MS, they would be rejected. It means you have to come for the MS. Someone made a choice, which is 
godly, knowing the reality of Golos and how many people have that test. And somewhere a couple of hundred years ago, it was decided that even if someone is going to come for an ulterior motive when they convert, they should not be rejected. It should only be rejected if they're lying. But when you convert, you have to do it sincerely. So if someone is coming and saying that I have an ulterior motive, I'm dating, God forbid, God forbid, we're not condoning this, just, just a fact. They're going to a basin today, this is the fact, and I want to convert. They won't be pushed away, but they cannot be converted today because today it would be a conversion for a ulterior motive. The theory is, is that once a person is practicing Yiddishkeit for a year or two years, which is what it takes in any orthodox conversion, once you're practicing it for a year or two years, at that point, you want it. At that point. And actually, there are many stories, many of sincere people who came to convert, that they came into Beisden because they were dating a Jew. Rahman al In middle of their conversion process, they broke off with their Jewish partner. Because conversion is accepting the mitzvahs. It's almost a contradiction. You're accepting the mitzvahs and you're breaking a mitzvah. In other words, they're going to be married to someone who's... Okay. Now now that you brought up what you brought up, let me just say like this. I got way off track, but I'll come back to the whole tshuva theme over here. And that is like this. That we don't view a giur as something technical. Even though... It's three steps, like basically it's for men, mila, for men and women, mikvah, and the, the, the commitment. Theoretically, you know, make that commitment. It's something of such significance that prior to which they're not Jewish, after which they are Jewish. What happens if someone is not Jewish? What would you say? Big deal, they're not Jewish? No, they have to do a giur, right? And if they don't do a giur, what are they? Not Jewish. Not Jewish. So what's so what's so what's what's your question? So if a person comes and they're not Jewish, Mrs. Morvich, I'm talking to you. What I'm saying is, she's ter- so she's she's 14 years. Doesn't matter. But everybody can say. I want you to know that I have I know people in yeshiva that uh, they thought they were Jewish and they discovered they're not Jewish. Let me tell you. Let me tell you where it happens the most often now, especially now. Now, when people do marriages, and don't be shocked when it's going to happen to your kids, the type of background checking that was never done so is starting to be done right now. What, starting. What do they check on the birth certificate? They check. Or? They check. They check on the whatever. I, I know that even even I. I know right now. I did a wedding in Israel. It was Omri, and for that I needed to get certified by the Rabbanut. And there are certain demands of the Rabbanut that really should be implemented here. Mm-hmm. Like checking, and I just want you to know that you would be shocked. You would. So they have to stop being insulted. You that would never. Know. So I'm, uh, it's not for right now. One second. You have no idea how many people yeah. here, here, meaning in the Lubavitcher LA community, and how many people in Crown Heights over the last ten years discovered that halachically they're not Jewish, what? and they did a giur or a giur lochumra. 
What happens is, is as time is going on, just for a heads up, when your kids, when my kids will get married, the ones that are not married, the type of, just a couple of steps, but those other steps begin to dig up stuff and uh, that means they had, how do you know that your mom was not adopted? Oh, yeah. that way. How do you know you and I, they didn't ever tell you you're the adopted Didn't you ever feel like you're the adopted one? I don't know. It could be. And, uh, that word on the huh? Then what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 like this if the person is observing Yiddishkeit, in the case of a Fruma family, like Taka observing Yiddishkeit, and how will that, that will be assessed by, by your basin. So, like, Again, nowadays, nowadays, people are not given a gear without knowing Shulchan Aruch. Nowadays. It, it, it wasn't that way. I was like, I was playing. So if you know, they'll convert you today. They'll convert, they'll find out, you'll, you'll be converted a, a week later. Does someone have a choice? You have a choice to say no, of course. Is that enticing to you? I hope not. Okay, good. I'm saying, like, what, what happened? Um, now, there are many people, Mrs. Morvich, Stam, I'm speaking not about a person, we're speaking about a concept. There are many people that know they don't know Yiddishkeit. They're, they're, they, they are socially in a, in, a, in a Jewish group, but they don't know Hilchot Shabbat. If they don't know, then they have to learn like everyone else, and which is fine. So let them learn and let them convert. 100%. But it's very important not to uh, diss the importance of getting a conversion. That means even if someone, even if someone was born in a Lubavitcher family and they're wearing a kapote and they're wearing a hat, right? This happens a lot by Russian Jews, by Lubavitcher Russian Jews. It could be that this person's grandmother or this person's great grandma could be somewhere in the old home, somewhere in Romania, underwent a gear by a basin that is not an accepted basin. And we know that now. Not the end of the world. They do a gear today. Today, they'll do a gear on the on the same day they find out. Shouldn't it won't happen. Do one? Wouldn't huh? it be such a good idea for everyone to just do one? When? Like we're yeah. married. Oh, like in you general. Want to have a basin? Just to make sure we have a clean. You're going into the basin, and the, you have to have three dayanim right outside the mikveh, and they're gonna ask you. It's very uncomfortable. Sure. Are you keeping this mitzvahs? Yes, I am. I don't know. Oh, because people don't keep everything. No, no, no. Oh, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was a good line that kind of got chopped there. Then you really have to keep it all. Now, my my Zayden made the choice. There's a lot more leeway, which is also not that fear. Yeah, the first, yeah, the first get is a, uh, yeah. In other words, bottom line is, is that is that when someone knows now, now it wasn't that way because really the commitment of marriage, the commitment to God as being, is not about information. It's about whatever I'll be informed of, I'm in. De facto, now, Giyot is only done when people are, are, are knowledgeable, which is why now many converts know more halachas than people that are born Jewish. They know more. It also happens to be a fact that many people can live in a Fuma community and they don't know. Not their fault. They just don't know enough. So they have to learn. Who is going to assess that? Whichever basin is doing the Giyot. So it's not so, and until they do the gear, they're not Jewish. When so they do the gear, they're Jews. Conversions so, take so long. Conversions take that long because the person, if if the person came from a non-Jewish background, they don't know. It takes a long time to know. Mm-hmm. And another thing, uh, did anyone that survived the Holocaust? Everyone is 
Jewish. Mm-hmm. I always, I always, because we had a guest at the top of the table that week, and she said she never knew she was Jewish, she never grew up, but her grandmother, she remembers, always had this tattoo number on her arm. Yeah. She never spoke about nothing, so she doesn't know. So I would say like this, that if such a woman were to get married, or her kids will get married, there are bate dinam today, that for a, in a very short amount of time will halachically determine, you have to know halachas, you have to know halachas, it will be by her, um, having just just being at a concentration camp doesn't prove you're Jewish. Yeah. Probable because many goyim. Yeah, I'm saying, but I'm saying, but I, you, I, I'm not getting. There's there's steps. People feel insulted when you get those questions. A lot of it will be based on documents. In other words, how do I know that I'm my mother's son? Birth certificate. Birth certificate halachically. And then, and then you go you go back. You have to go from mother to mother. Um, someone being buried in a Jewish cemetery will be great will be great, or the other way around. Sometimes you, you mamish know, it's crazy. Sometimes you don't know how much Bayesden knows now from going into cemeteries in Eastern Europe. You also have someone, what is it, the DNA testing? Today? The DNA testing is something that in addition is good, but we don't base pure, pure, which is a big, amazing topic. Like, why not? Because it could be paternal. Um, right? No, no, what, what happens if, there, I'm not, I don't know DNA enough, I just know that this is a big halachic debate. Whatever it is, even paternal. I know that it, it, consensus right now is, it's definitely used as a additional proof. I feel like in order for rabbis to be able to make the decision whether DNA testing is okay, they have to know the, the background and the science. I definitely don't know. I know that I know Batedinim that really know. Israel is so good at this. They're so good at they're so organized. And when you they do a marriage, when you do a marriage in Israel, it's crazy. You, you have to have in a folder a couple of steps that feel a little bit insulting. Basically it they're they're, they're saying, I don't know you're Jewish. So Big I deal. Have a, <coughs> I have a question. Yes. <coughs> If somebody thought that she's Jewish and kept Shabbos for 14 years... What does it mean? Okay, I'm, I'm not talking about an individual. I, yeah. I want to talk about... Let's speak with There's a guy. I want to give a, a good example. I, I grew up, not over here in LA, that I, I have the merit to live amongst the Fruma community. I was in Brazil for 10 years with, with my wife, with Stary. We had a typical Chabad house. You have to understand, for the Brazilian Jew, prior going to Chabad house, that kept nothing. For him to go from there, to drive to shul, but to daven Friday night, and then to go to the movies afterwards. And, and then after five years to make the hachlata, he's not going to movies. And to his knowledge, he went through 10 years of getting better, but that person is not keeping Shabbos at all. Not keeping Shabbos at all. They're not even near it because they would never came to the place yet. It's a process. It's a process where they're going to actually want to know what are the Lama Tesmalachas, what is Baidr. Not that we're keeping it that much, but we at least know that we don't know. And and, and, and all those, all of these details, I would say that most people, most people, if, if the majority of their shul members were not that from, I don't see how they would be from. And it's even worse because that person could be under the illusion, delusion, that this is it. But my question is, so somebody thought that is Jewish, kept Shabbat. Yeah. And the whole Allah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll be converted in one day. A basin will convert them in one day. So, but right now that they're telling her, them Him, that, that whoever. they are not Jewish. And, you know, if somebody's 
converting, you have to do one things that it is. Um, that's not complete. You don't keep complete Shabbat, but you have to do something wrong so it won't be a complete, complete. So if somebody kept it for a long time, now that she or he knows that he's not Jewish, after 14 years, whatever. After 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 80 years, then the Beisden will determine whether they know enough for them to get a conversion. It's very simple. And I know okay. that if if, they'll, if if they know enough, however that's judged, they'll be converted that day. Okay. In the cases that I'm talking about, where people discover mainly because they're marrying their kids. So before they marry the kids, you discover it, not the kid is not Jewish, the mom is not Jewish. And therefore her siblings are not Jewish, that you can have a whole mishpacha getting ready to the wedding by going to the mikvah. You, this mamish, you don't know with mamish, and they go to the mikvah that day. And then there can be cases where people were socially Jewish, they don't know enough, they won't get converted right away. Okay, but let me come back. The concept of the, of the commitment the concept of geirus is not because you know, even though now, like I said, so there has to be a commitment. How do you know that we have to have a brismila? How do you know you have to go to the mikvah? How do we know that? It's good to know. Open open up a chumash. You find me, where did we go? That we had a bris. It's not written explicitly. But, you know, the dam that we put on the doorpost, the Medrash says, was the dam of the Pesach, the dam Mila. We also know that we brought a carbon Pesach, and it says in the Chumash later that a person who's uncircumcised is not allowed to eat a carbon Pesach. So there's enough hints that we had a bris Mila. How do you know mikvah? How do I know commitment, Nasev A convert is doing what we did. We all converted. We are all converts. But how do you see mikvah? It's good to know. So, the, so it says like this, that Moshe Rabbeinu, before we got to Torah, this is at the end of Parshas Mishpatim, we offered carbon oila, carbon shlamim. There were two carbonis. This is something that we don't do nowadays. But at that one time, there were animals that were slaughtered and its blood was thrown on the entirety of the Jewish people. It doesn't mean, I think, that every Jew needs to get a little spritz of blood. I don't think you have from one carbonoila enough blood to go around. But the concept that there were times that blood needed to be thrown on people, which Lahavdil sounds pagan, mamish, maybe Svardim do it with the chicken, right, Mrs. Morovich? They sprinkled the blood of the chicken on the doorpost or on the person, um, not personal, right? But that's a Persian thing. Or no? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Because I heard Persians doing it. Or maybe you know, I'm a Moroccan thing. The of the car, the back tire. Whatever. There you go. They put, so this is something <laughs> that they would take the blood <coughs> of a carbon and they sprinkled it. That, that it says in the Chumash. And there's a rule that you are never worthy of having animal blood sprinkled on you ritually unless you went to the mikvah. That's the source. See, it says in the Chumash that Moshe Rabbeinu sprinkled the blood. But there's no hazoaz dam on people unless the person went to the mikvah. That means we must have gone to the mikvah, which is also quite amazing. How did they, how did that work? Where was the mikvah? You're talking about there was one rock. You know how much water came out of that rock? Meshugah for millions of people and millions of animals. And, and anyways, that was the Be'er Shal Miriam was the 
maybe there were men hours or women's hours. I don't know. This must have been a whole balagan over there. And we went to the mikvah. And it's, no, no, no. We went to the mikvah right before Sinai. We were by Har Sinai. There's no water there. We already had the aid of Miriam, and that was the source of water. Huh? Rashi says, Rashi says, since it says in the Chumash that, that Moshe Rabbeinu sprinkled the blood on them, and we have a rule that whenever people are having ritually blood sprinkled on them, so when these uh, Persians or not, or Iraqis or not, when they have their dam sprinkled on the car, they have to take the car to the mikvah first. If not, it doesn't work. <laughs> there's no, there's ain't azua sadam believe tefillah. So that's how we know we went to the mikvah. Now that, that passage begins that Moshe Rabbeinu split the dam into half. He took half of the blood. Rashi says he split it in half. Why did he split the blood in half? And Rashi asks who split it in half. Because Rashi understands it. Chatsi hadam means exactly half. A human being does not know how to split something exactly in half. Exactly. A malach split it in half. Like this. Why did we do that? So Hasidus explains, this is the whole concept, is that we make commitments and a commitment connects us. A commitment is a connection. And the way we evolve is that on some point, on some level, there is a break in that connection. Which is what happened with the Chet ego. But the reason why there's a break of that connection is because after we do Tshuva, Tshuva puts us on an exponential different level. That has to be Tshuva. We're not talking about the simple Tshuva of, oops, I made that, no longer, I'm going to go back and behave. No, we're speaking about like my story of tshuva, where dafka, because of the anguish of the disconnect, does the person come to the realization of how much they want to be connected to God in the context of Yiddishkeit, and that changes that entire person. And the Alter Rebbe go, so therefore the blood was split in half. It was almost that God was already telling us that you guys are making a commitment, even if, let's say, even if there's going to be a break of the commitment, What's going to come from it is something exponentially greater. And the Alter Rebbe beautifully says like this. Let's speak about connection to God. Let's not speak about observance. Hasidus doesn't speak that much about observance, which is Shulchan Aruch. It speaks about the, the soul, of the, the desire of connecting. The Alter Rebbe says that people have a deep, natural love to their life very deep by the way even people that are suicidal god forbid and i'm not saying to minimize it there's a hotline that you should call and you should reach out never 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 minimize someone's um expression especially a youngster of their thoughts of committing suicide and ultimately you cannot stop them another good thing to know not good, it's just to know. You can't stop a person from doing it because you, you, unless you're going to lock the person up in a cell and keep them there forever. If you're going to stop them today, they'll, 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 God forbid. So these people need help. But in many cases, even people that think they want to kill themselves, their love to their life is so deep that when it comes to the, that moment, they can't do it. Thank God. I know that some people do. And we should not, God forbid, uh, ignore that. Al-Tarebbe says that if you think about it rationally, like he doesn't understand, he's saying that who's your life? What is your life? For the Al-Tarebbe, it's like obvious, it's God. So your love to your life, your connection to you, automatically means you're connected to God. 
But why don't people feel it that way? Why don't people view it that way? He's like almost, he doesn't understand. He's at Sadiq. He's speaking about, you, you, this is just a great question. How would you answer that question? Why, why doesn't our love for, I, my selfish ego love, I love my life. I'm not speaking about a person who is not loving circumstances of their life. I'm talking about something much deeper. Some people don't like this. I don't like this part of my life. I'm talking about life, life. Not the setting of my life. Not the parnasa of my life. You, 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 you love your life so people don't want to die. Like you're, you're connected to your life. I think because we separate things from God. So but we forget we, that God is... But how do we do that? How is that even possible? He's saying that, what is life? You know, it's not a semantic question. Like, so don't, don't use the word God. What is life? Life is not a tangible. And life is not mine. I know that. It's not mine. It's like it, there's something that is gifted to me. Then there's a bit of a disconnect to themselves. There's a disconnect. Okay, the word is disconnect. Now, where that disconnect is, it can be like this, it can be like this. Tal Tereb is saying that the kavana of the reason, the purpose of prayer is that, using religious words, that uh, uh, sin disconnects. And the purpose of prayer is to remove that disconnect, which is difficult. But once you do that, you're going to mamish love God. And that's going to inspire your Yiddishkeit. Once you love, once you get that, you have everything. That's the avoid of tefillah. And it's avoid. He says, since we all have a disconnect, wherever it is, to discover the disconnect, to overcome the disconnect is so difficult. So you can daven, he says, and he's speaking about already more elevated people that every now and then they mamish feel connected to God. They feel, and they love God, the way they love their life. It's the same thing. They mamish, it's an ava connection, and then they can lose it. How, how can that, how does that happen? Because of this disconnect. So that's tefillah. And how, how, how he, he Al-Tareb is not just writing a, a scholarly, he lived with that. He, he counseled Hasidim. Means he lived a yid that lived his whole life with people that are struggling. They were dying to die for God. They were dying to have Avas Hashem. And, and they have it and they lose it. And you have to daven and they're schwitzing away for that. Then the Alter Rebbe says, another way of getting it is not by davening. Davening in this context means finding my disconnect and dealing with it, which is endless, day and day. He says, then you have the Jew that learns Torah. If you identify good, if not, it doesn't matter. Some people, when they learn Torah, they have to make an effort. The effort is the discipline and time. The effort is you have to put your mind to it. But many people, when they learn Torah, the Torah somehow magically removes the disconnect. That's a, for some people a theory. For some people, I know people that had that. They were connected to God. Where did they get that from? Not because they're tzaddikim. Because their commitment to Torah was so strong that the light of the Torah somehow um, bridged the disconnect. But you have to make an effort to learn Torah. In other words, there's davening and learning whose purpose, whose inner purpose is to answer to how do I overcome? There's something off in me. Because if everything would be normal, I would push it Av, I would love God. Because I love my life and God is my life. As God is everyone's life. He says, a Jew does tshuva. But we're speaking about, the Altarev is speaking about a tshuva out of desperation. A tshuva, when a person realizes, is that 
if they don't connect to God, they're finished. They're done. It's a type of tshuva which the Alter Rebbe says in another Maimur, you don't even choose to do. And life brings everyone to a place where it's like they're checkmated. I got to change. The LA community merited, I was not there in person, but uh, there was a group from the Nova survivors that are here in LA. And um, amongst them, if you guys know, there was only one Jewish soldier who also happened to be a Russian citizen that was released in the first uh, prisoner exchange. I don't know if you remember that. We, we heard him talking oh, oh, oh. the other night. I want to speak about him. So so this is a guy that Mahajgacha Pratis, a couple of years back, for some reason he chose to opt to get his Russian passport, even though he, he's an Israeli. One of his parents are Russian. And he had the good seichel. When they chopped him, he right away identified himself, Ani Rusi, I'm Russian. And Putin put pressure on Hamas that when they made the release, he was the only male, young soldier, Israeli soldier, that was released because he was Russian. He was released because God released him, but that was a soul. So I didn't hear him directly, but I spoke to a few people who heard him talk. He talked, he talked here Wednesday night. He said the guy talked for an hour and a half, and you could hear a pin drop, and that was the first time that he himself shared a story. It wasn't recorded. It was, not, it was a pity. No, he didn't want. He didn't want. I didn't say. I said I didn't hear recorded. I says I heard it from Jeremy. I heard it from a few people that were there. And the Nakuda, what I heard was that this is a person who began as an atheist. This is what I mean by tshuva. This is like a deep tshuva. And what they did to him, he was describing how how impossible it was first to live overground because of the constant bombardment. He couldn't take it. And then how it was in if you're claustrophobic. And God forbid you're forced to go in a tunnel, these little tunnels. In other words, he came to a place where he said where he, he he could not live. And the only way out, the only way out, this is real, like I heard Shuba, was to give his life over to God. There's a God. The fact that he made it until there made him know that there's something protecting him. Call it what you want. He says, I'll call it God. He mama, she gave his life over to God. He says, when that happened, he says he lost the fear that was taking his life away. And that's 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 the truth that I was talking about. When a person does that type of truth, and that's the whole reason why we're disconnected. The disconnect of the cheto eagle, like the big disconnects, the little disconnects, is really from God's perspective, we have a Yetzir Hara. We're not doing it for the right reasons. But the bigger perspective is, is that you can have a Jew, the Alter Rebbe says, that has to sweat for 80 years, either davening or learning, trying to be connected to God, trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with me? Why don't I have Avas Hashem? And then when you do tshuva, he says, the whole thing is different. That person, this guy, is connected to God. Nekudah. The whole Yiddishkeit, after you do tshuva, is different. When a person is desperate to be connected with, in this case, God, and they are connected, then they don't want to lose that connection. And what do you do? How long can you be crazy connected that way? You can't. So for that, God gave Torah and mitzvahs. It's a whole different perspective. So when I, the Torah and the mitzvahs of about tshuva is in order to maintain that connection. The Torah mitzvahs of prior to this level of tshuva is of people that are in the dark, which is all of us, or most of us, 
And we know that we would want to want, but I don't want. I don't feel it. So I'm trying through my mitzvahs, let me daven to feel something. And tshuva, now in order to have tshuva, you have to be underground like this guy in the Hamas tunnels. That God forbid. No, it's, a person has to see their life in a way where they are desperate. They cannot go on this way. That is a tshuva that is bigger than taira and bigger than tefillah. It lifts up your head. And from then until the end of your life, your whole Yiddishkeit won't be to overcome the disconnect. It's different. It's going to be the, the pleasure of the connection and the desire for me to continue with that connection. So now I have Yiddishkeit, which is in this context, tools that enable me to continue with that place. I want to stay in this place. So now I'm going to daven, I'm going to learn, I'm going to keep mitzvahs, and that will keep me in that place. But I'm already in that place. And that makes the whole Cheto Egel worthwhile. So even when this Pekudayim, even when there was a judgment, ultimately, the commitment that we made to God prior to the Cheto Egel, which was true, was nothing in comparison to the commitment that we made to God after the Cheto Egel. It was like a whole new marriage. It was a second marriage with the same parties. It was a whole new marriage. And now that Bahashgacha Pratis, he brought that up, that if there was a Yid, or not yet a Yid, that Bahashgacha Pratis has to undergo a Giyur, like you were saying, instead of it being viewed as something not good, it's the greatest opportunity. Because it's the same players. You're not changing anything externally. It's the, I'm the same me, and God is the same God, and the Yiddishkeit is the same Yiddishkeit. But I have an opportunity to make a brand new commitment. Brand new commitment. It's like getting remarried again to the same person. It's a beautiful thing. Everyone should do it, whatever the age is. Go somewhere, go alone, go make a big chasana. <laughs> and it's nice because, it, because it's new, not a, not because it's beplimious. I know somebody four times married to the same husband. Gavaldik. <laughs> and she got a ring every time. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> 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 